welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Robotics. My guest today is Dr. Tathanka Bandupadhyay, a research scientist at CSIRO. Tertha, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for having me. Um, I think before, before we start, I would like to say a few words uh, about us. Um, so we have met a couple of times over, over the period. And um, I must say that whenever I met you, I found your enthusiasm for robotics really exciting. Like we had gone into long chats and, and I, I was looking at some of the other uh, podcasts that you have been doing and listening to them. And it's fascinating that you have been able to talk to top-notch researchers and also congratulations on the numerous awards that you got. And I think it's a very exciting thing that you're doing and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Oh, thank you, Tessa. That's that, it's a flip side introduction for me today. Normally, I get to, to tell my, my, my listeners how great my, my guest is, but thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. Um, and yes, I, I've certainly um, had nothing but enthusiasm from anyone that I've approached to come on the, on the podcast. And, you know, I think it is so important to highlight um, the absolutely amazing people that we have in the robotics uh, community. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, so, yes. It's an wonderful. exciting time. And, and you, of course, are one of them. So you work for CSIRO, which is uh, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization as a research scientist. So what, is, what does this involve? What's a typical day for you? Yeah, so, uh, uh, so for, for people who are um, not familiar with what CSIRO is, CSR is Australia's national research organization. So it's, it's funded by uh, uh, an act of legislature. And our mandate here is um, to actually look at the big challenges that Australia faces and try to dedicate resources in terms of researchers and engagement to solve those big problems. Um, so I'm just a tiny, tiny uh, person sitting in this huge organization. And um, my uh, role here is, um, so I'm a basically a senior research scientist in the group. Um, the group that I work on is a robotics group, which sits under the Data61 umbrella. And we look at the digital challenges and robotics challenges um, that, that Australia faces. And actually some of those uh, challenges are also worldwide. So it's a ubiquitous challenge for the whole humanity sometimes. Um, my personal uh, activities rotate around doing both research as well as industrial engagement. Um, uh, my research focus is on robot mobility in complex environments. So I'm fascinated by how robots move um, and how they interact with the environment and how they interact with humans and how they interact with the tasks that the robots are given. Uh, and of course, in many of the field robotics applications, you would find that there's always this uncertainty, this this chaos that's happening. And, and we as humans are, are fascinating creatures. We can throw us a lot of uncertainty and we'll figure out a way to solve the problem and go ahead with that. Whereas the state of the art of the robots is you have to give very precise instructions like, okay, so you have to do this, this, this. And if suddenly the situation changes, you find that those instructions are no longer valid and the robot sits and tries to figure out what, what, what it needs to do. So my interest is actually to solve those uncertainty problems in, in mobility. Um, I also have a small role. So I'm the cluster lead in inspection robotics. Uh, what it means is from the perspective of the group, um, I actually try to reach out to the industries, try to look at what are the open challenges that, that if solved would actually bring forward the technology and help the industry solve those um, applications in a much more efficient manner. 
And to do that, what I do is try to talk to them, try to figure out where the scientific challenges are. And um, CSIRO is also um, a trusted government advisor. So if we find that some of the challenges can be solved by um, some SME products and some other companies that already have certain solutions, uh, we actually try to link them back in. So we say that, look, this is your problem. Uh, you might not be aware of these solutions that's in this, this different market, but please talk to this person. But often we find that there are some problems that have not yet been solved because of technical challenges. And that's where we as scientists come in and try to formulate that as research problems. And what we then do is once we have formulated the problem, we look for uh, either researchers within our group, but also we partner with universities um, and academic institutions to, to actually jointly supervise PhD students or researchers and try to solve the scientific problem of that. And once we have a scientific breakthrough, then we, we as in our group, we try to ensure that the application of that breakthrough can be translated into the original problem that we had and then try to link it with SME. So we, we, we try to do both research as well as industry engagement, but what we try to do within our group is to try to bring all the parties together and to solve it in a much more joint fashion. Well, it's a huge job because, I mean, as everyone knows in Australia, all universities, um, especially focusing in robotics, they've all got their research groups. Yeah. So to know what one person's doing in Perth as opposed to one group in Sydney, like it would just be a nightmare. So that's probably where CSIRO really comes into its own as an um, overarching organisation, bringing all the players together. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, having said that, uh, it's... Uh, I would, I would like to see this problem more than a single organizational yeah. uh, challenge. So yes, CSIRO is um, supported by the, the agency. Um, and it, we do have a good network of um, officers and researchers across various domains. Um, but the, the rate of technology development and the rate of scientific breakthrough is such huge that it's not possible for a single single organization to keep tabs of all those things. And hence, we actually need a vibrant community where people are talking about things and, and your platform, right? So you're bringing people to talk about certain things. And when I'm listening to it, I can, you are helping me find other researchers in this domain. So it's, it's, a, it's a joint effort, which I feel both from the industry, academia, but also uh, general enthusiasts about robotics because it's the enthusiasm that will carry us forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, as I, I found a lot of um, times that I talk to people and I go, so do you know about this person at this university? They go, no, I go, well, you should check out the work that they do. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. look, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in an unfortunate position that I can research people and I can go, okay, look, I think this work is going to be interesting. Whereas, you know, you very, you very specified in what you're doing. You know, you yes, don't have yeah. time to do what I'm doing, but that's exactly. where the good yeah. comes in that you can see, oh, this is someone else I need to talk to. Yes, yes, yes. And often, uh, uh, this, this often happens in uh, various researchers. We, we start to look at a problem, we start digging in so deep that sometimes we generate a tunnel vision that the solution might be just across the board in a different domain, maybe in agriculture that we haven't looked at in yeah. mining and then suddenly, oh, why don't we just use that technology, right? So you have this, this uh, so we have to break, break out of the tunnel vision and, and listen to uh, the breakthroughs in other domains, yeah. 
So you have a particular interest in inspection robots, especially climbing robots. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a very new area of activities with application for industrial inspection and space robotics. So particularly, um, I've, I've, you sent me a video of the Magneto robot, which I will put in the show notes, and, and this has got a magnetic foot. So yeah. tell, us a, tell us a little bit about this robot, and is it still in prototype, or is it being used in industry? So, um, so this was... Um, so let me take a step back and tell you the story of Magneto, yes. right? So, so as I was mentioning, um, so one of the key challenges that um, was present to us, uh, presented to us uh, by some of our industry partners was the, the challenge of inspecting confined space robots, uh, confined space um, domains, right? Because confined space areas are areas which, has, which still has unfortunately high mortality rates as compared to the other, other areas because of the hazardous nature, the, the way of access, the, the reachability problem. So there's a big demand for, for uh, robotic or autonomous uh, systems that can go in and solve this problem. Uh, when we started investigating this problem, we found out that one of the key aspects that limit the success of many of these robots is that of mobility. So you would find pockets of confined spaces in various domains, in various shapes, sizes, they can be huge three meter wide pressure containers or they can be small pockets under a bridge, right? So this variability prevents a standardized solution that goes in. So once you solve the mobility problem that a robot can actually go to any particular location that it's told to go, then you can strap on different sensors, different actuators and try to figure out what you want to do in that area. But the problem is actually reaching that area, right? So, um, and hence still, I mean, humans are amazing at doing various things, right? So humans are still being relied upon significantly to actually reach these complex environments. So when we started looking at some of the structures, we decided, well, we do have some background in high dimensional robots, right? So we have been working on, on um, uh, manipulators and, and uh, legged robots and, 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 and whatnot. So we decided, why don't we start looking at a one particular version of this? So let's strap on some magnets on the feet of the, the legged robot that we had at the time, and let's try to build uh, climbing capability. Now, this is not something new. Um, this has been done by many different uh, research organizations worldwide since 80s. You will find climbing robots doing certain things. And we all know about Spider-Man, right? So who would want to be like Spider-Man, go any nooks and crannies <laughs> and, and catch up, right? So why don't we have a robot like that? Um, well, for many reasons, because the technology has not been solved. So that actually spurned us into trying to solve a lot of the, the research problems. And we came up with some new novel uh, technological uh, innovations. I wouldn't say they're breakthroughs, but small innovations that allow us to actually put together a simple prototype that can show certain promise, right? So we started then, so we called it Magneto. Of course, uh, we are all fans of superheroes. and. Well, you have a magnet on the feet of the robot and let's claim it to be Magneto, right? Um, and so we started demonstrating this in various expos and we started conversing with various companies that actually solved this problem and hence our engagement with Nexus came through. So Nexus is a private company um, sitting in Western Australia that does a lot of inspection of confined spaces in the oil and gas industry. So they have a whole fleet of robots. Um, but our conversation with them, when they saw Magneto, they said, oh, that's great because we don't have something like that in the solution uh, in the market that we can apply. So that's where our next step of engagement stepped into to start talking with this SME and start um, trying to see how can we license them? How can we bring them along so that they then become the, 
the developer or the productization uh, unit of this concept. Um, so CSRO is not a company that builds and sells robots. We definitely, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, want to work with SMEs that can actually bring this technology out, wrap it up in a product and bring it to the industry. So that's how the, the, the Magneto came along. Um, and the aspect of that, the technology aspect, the scientific aspect of that is pure climbing, right? So what, what I mean by that is you want a robot which can attach itself to the surface and then move around, right? So um, that's typical climbing. So when you have climbing, you have um, uh, ice picks or something, and then you hit on, on a glacial wall and then you grab and move around. And interesting, this aspect is also true in space, right? So when you have low gravity, what you do is you have to grip around, right? So you would see astronauts floating around and they are, in a sense, they are jumping, uh, they're floating, they're jumping, but they're also using the same modes of locomotion. Uh, in fact, when you look at some of the EVAs that are done, which is extravehicular activities done by um, astronauts, you'd see that they actually grab hold of some of the rungs at the outside of the ISS, and that's actually grabbing and moving, right? So essentially it's climbing, right? So if we solve the problem of climbing in a much more general fashion, um, we would have applicability in many, many different domains. And we know that inspection and maintenance tasks is ubiquitous, right? So wherever you go, you, if you have an infrastructure, you have to inspect it. So combining these two can we come up with a, uh, a simple solution or a scalable solution, um, solving the scientific as well as the domain problems together. And that's where our whole climbing research is, is sitting right now. It's fascinating. I mean, I looked at the videos and I just thought of all the applications. So, I mean, you would be aware of the um, the inspection robot on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Oh, that, yes, uh, yes, Professor Luda, yeah. yeah, I chatted to him. And, yes, yes, um, yes. The one that's like the caterpillar going. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Very interesting. You know, it's a no-brainer that you would be using this technology absolute, because you're saving absolute. people's lives. Yes, yes. Uh, um, so uh, I, I have um, mm. I have talked with Liu, the guy, very, very... Uh, early on and we, we stay in contact and he's done some fascinating work. And, and that's basically the kind of approach that we need to take, like the robots that go in, attach itself and then do inspection. And, and they are even doing going one step further. So they are doing even maintenance and abrasion yeah. and painting. So that's the next step coming from inspection. Fascinating work there. Yeah. yeah. And who would think this? You know, you drive over the Sydney Harbour Bridge and you go, who's keeping this bridge so great? These people must be working hard. Yes, the robots are working yes, hard. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and but, 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 there's a whole team of people yes. behind the robots working hard to make sure that the robots work hard. So, yeah. Yes, look, I always, you know, when I talk about robotics, I, the emphasis for me is always, you're not replacing someone, you're getting the robot to help you in a dangerous yeah. job, or you need it for, it's solving a particular problem. That's yeah. when you get the robots in. Yeah, yeah. And it also it extends the human capability, mm -hmm. right? So so as a, as a worker, you want to have the best tools. So if you think of a robot as a tool that you can extend and build upon, that's how we should be looking at it, not as as replacement for what you're already doing, right? Yeah, so you definitely. Move up the move up the the, the chain of uh, activities. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, you know, when I talk to them about, you know, even my robots that I deal with, and they go, oh, they, you know, like it's going to replace a, a human being. I go, it's not possible. A, these robots aren't smart enough, and B, yeah. that's not the idea. This that's is not just, the idea. It's, exactly. it's assistive technology. Yes, so, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. that's really a good way of phrasing it, Tufa. 
and, and, and you see that uh, that acceptance has happened in other domains, right? So for example, a washing machine is a robot that mm -hmm. does stuff for you, right? So yeah. uh, uh, you have the vacuum cleaners, right? So Roomba yes. vacuum cleaners. So do you want to have just the vacuum and do you want to walk around and clean the surfaces? Or do you want to just have a vacuum cleaner so you can do better stuff and just leave the dirty work to the robot, right? So yeah. you're still in control, but you have a better tool now to actually do the work that you wanted to do. Yeah, and you can do something brilliant with your time, which, you know, like is doing the magneto robots. <laughs> so you're working on a heritage monitoring using modular fuel robots in Peel yeah. Island off via the coast of Brisbane, Australia. What's this all about? So, uh, so this is, uh, again, um, so the challenge here is um, accessibility, right? So mobility. Yeah. Um, you have these heritage buildings um, called Lazareth off the coast of Brisbane. So there's an island called Peel Island. Uh, many people know about that. It's a heritage site. And what it has, it has a lot of dilapidated um, buildings that need to be uh, maintained. And, and there's a lot of studies. So this is a partnership with the with the, with the forestry department, with QUT, as well as the Department of Architecture in, in UQ. Um, and what they wanted to do was to actually have a consistent estimate of how the buildings are behaving, what kind of mitigation actually works. Now, because these buildings are really old and they were all termite ridden, uh, some of the buildings are no longer safe for humans to enter, right? So they can't take the load of a human. So the question was, yes, you still need to go inside and see how it's happening, how it's decaying, uh, but can we send a robot? Uh, traditionally, you would think that, okay, so let's build a robot for that. Let's ship it out. Let's deploy it and, and try to figure out what's happening. Um, we found out that the whole logistics of having a single robot that goes around and does a, a bit of things is actually quite limiting, right? So um, the question is, because of this variability in the environmental factors, the variability in the building, some of them, the houses are small, the access passage is low. Um, some of them require larger footprint. Some of them require smaller footprint. Um, what we decided was to rethink the way robotics is, is, is presented. We decided instead of having a robot, why don't we <clears throat> bring the component, components together and assemble a robot on the spot, right? So that's where our modular system comes into play. Um, so what we do is we have this modular wheels, which has the intelligence, the, the excuse me, <coughs> which has the intelligence, which has power system, which can communicate with other, other um, wheels or other computing units. And we, we think of that as a glorified Lego. So we can assemble a robot of our shape and our size that we want. And suddenly the robot is active, right? So the innovation there is if you have this intelligent Lego pieces, can we write the software? Can we write the AI that allows it to do? And that was remarkably successful because we were able to go to an area where you couldn't send humans before, but we could also redesign on the spot with very minimal, uh, we could do a, a recalibration of a robot within 10, 15 minutes, right? So without having the logistics of that. So we brought a bucket of bits, assembled the bucket of bits, there was a robot ready to go. And this could be done by anyone, right? Yeah. So yes, we had our PhD students who was, who was an expert, but the idea is this could be done by anyone, right? Um, so the concept there was, let's rethink the way robots are assembled and hence we are able to adapt our technology into a variety of different environments, which are especially challenging to reach at, right? So that's where the, the whole, aspect of monitoring of the heritage building with uh, modular field robots came through. And this has been quite successful. And we are actually looking at commercializing some of these core technologies 
lot of industries are interested uh, because um, there, are, there are lots of things to be moved around in a workplace, right? So there are workshops, there are um, uh, industry warehouses where you just need to move one pellet from one point to the other. And there are loads and loads of trolleys around, right? So you, but the trolleys are dumb. You'd have people to push those trolleys, right? So what if we strap on this modular um, wheel robots into the trolleys and suddenly the trolleys become intelligent, right? Um, so this is basically what the Amazon robots are doing, the Kiva systems we're doing of the era. So it's rethinking the way the logistics works. So that's the power of the modularity. So can I ask you, does the CSIRO, um, like on your website, do you have projects that you're working on? So say industries, yep. can they go in there and go, okay, look, here are some solutions that you're already working on. Yes, yes, we do have that. Uh, uh, I can talk more about the robotics website. The robotics website actually showcases some of our latest results. So there is also um, um, a newsletter that's, that comes out, or not, not necessarily a newsletter, but it's an email uh, list. So whenever we have new results, new outcomes, new engagements, we publicize that to the mailing group. And that's where you will get the cutting edge um, news. But there's also sections about what are our different teams? What are the different projects that we are working on? So if you want to partner, you want to solve certain problems uh, as a researcher, we are always open to collaborate in many different concepts. Fabulous. Um, Tertha, will you send me the link for those things? I will and we'll put them in the show notes, please, because I yes, think that absolutely. will be quite a yeah. good resource for people to look at. So, um, yes, absolutely. So going on to delivery robots uh, in Australia that, that aren't really being used at the moment, um, tell us about your mobility on demand service with autonomous vehicles and busy and crowded Singapore roads, because you must have been doing your postdoc or something there. That's, that's so, right. Yeah. yeah that's so, right. so tell us about this. So uh, before I came to Australia, I was in Singapore. I did my PhD there. And after my PhD, I was working as a postdoctoral scientist. Um, uh, so one of the problems uh, in Singapore, and this is becoming a standard problem across many different metropolitan cities across the world, is the challenge of uh, mobility in really high density living environments, right? Um, so the traditional way of looking at it is, um, well, if you want to move from point A to point B, well, you have a car or you have a public system. Now the public system can cater to a large range of, um, large range of people, but they are restricted in how far they can go. So that exposes the problem, which is well known as the last mile problem, right? So you want to take a bus, uh, you want to take a train from your home, you still have to solve that you have to move that last mile into the bus stop or the train yeah. station. Uh, what then happens is if you want to solve that last mile problem that often, um, especially people in Western world would actually be more inclined to own their own vehicles, right? So yes, yeah. yes, I have to go there, but I have to park there anyway. So why don't I just take my car and go to the city and find a parking? Uh, that's, that's well and good, uh, but it doesn't scale well. So if like 3 million people in a city want to have a car, there's no space, right? Um, but also if you think about the resource um, that we are talking about, the resource here is that of mobility, right? So you don't necessarily want to use a car, you want to go from point A to point B, right? So it's more like a like an Uber system or, or a car share system, uh, sorry, a, a, a taxi system. So you call for a taxi to come into your place and bring it around, right? So this is a much more glorified version of a taxi system. Um, so the car share economy, um, so this was in 2010 to 2013. So at that time, the, the shared economy was building up uh, Airbnb, uh, Uber, Grab, and all those 
players were, were becoming active. And um, what, what was happening at that time was, well, Uber is a car, car um, is more of a taxi service, but there were like other zip cars and other car companies which would actually give you the car to actually rent, right? So instead of owning a car, you would rent a car. The problem with renting a car is, well, if there is a, if there is, um, if there's the requirement, like if there's a match in GABA, right? Uh, then everyone wants to go there, right? So which means that all the cars are sitting in, in the locality of GABA, and then uh, at the end, you have had a few drinks, you don't want the car anymore, you take public transport home. So what happens is that there's a huge accumulation of resources or the cars or bicycles or whatever you want to call it in certain hot spots at certain times of the day. So the way to solve that is to then send lots of humans to rebalance the network, right? So you have to send in humans who would actually big, big, big trucks, load up the bicycles and drop them off at efficient points. Why don't you have this as an autonomous system, right? So yes, you want a car, the car comes to your door, like a Tesla car, it comes to your door automatically. And then you sit on it, if you want to drive it, you can drive it, but then you let go. And then that resource becomes available for the next position. And using predictive modeling of that environment, you would also know what those hotspots are. So those cars could actually assemble there for easy access. So if you know where more people are, are, are seeking more demand, that's where more cars and more um, vehicles would appear, right? So that's why we call it a mobility on demand. So whenever you want a demand, there should be a vehicle available to you. And the best way of making sure of that is to actually have the vehicles self-calibrated, self-aligned, and hence we did a lot of work on self-driving vehicles in the context of Singapore. And how did it go there? I mean, I know, like um, you said, it was it was 2013 that you did it. So 2013, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we we've evolved a little bit, but as uh, Professor Michael Milford, because he was on the Melbourne yeah. Robotics Meetup yes. group, of talking. Um, yes. You know, we still have a way to go with autonomous vehicles. Like absolutely, uh, absolutely. Lots of lots and lots of work still to be done. Absolutely, it's not a solved problem. Otherwise, you would have a self-driving car in everyone's garage, right? Yeah, that's that's um, yeah. And but so. So in 2013, I, I, uh, it was just hitting its peak and I got an offer from CSRO. I just came over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the work has actually continued. So the work, um, so this was under Professor Emilio Frazzoli, Daniela Roos from MIT, uh, as well as professors from Singapore, Mark, uh, Marcelo Ang and David Su and many other people setting this up. So what has happened then is um, there was a startup coming out of that, uh, which is well known as Neutronomy now, right? Yeah. So, the Neutronomy came out, out of the primary work and it was a startup company. It was extremely successful. It was bought over for, I think, over $400 million by, by Delphi. And now it has become, um, uh, it got bought over again. I, I keep forgetting yeah. track of it. So, yeah. so, so, so the value of that has actually um, exploded significantly. Um, and yes, while there are still a lot of work to be done, but in certain areas, in enclosed campuses where you can, actually have uh, an additional measure of safety by adding more constraints into it. It's not like public um, transportation system where, where not, sorry, to take it back, uh, not like open roads uh, where both the public, public uh, transportation systems as well as self-driving cars are moving. In a bit more, uh, in a much more constrained areas, they are performing really well, right? So there are lots of campuses which are using certain parts of it. The component technology then gets transferred into warehouse robots, into, uh, into logistics. Self-driving trucks is becoming more and more relevant because you can massively increase 
the safety ratings of the transport system um, because of the nature of the, of the work there. Um, so yes, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to expand, but there's also a lot of opportunities um, to exploit as part of the researchers. And I would say that um, in the context of Australia, that's just my opinion, um, is we do have this challenge still unresolved. Right? So we have growing cities, uh, which will become more and more efficient and people will, will start migrating to those, which means that the rural areas of Australia are actually not well resourced. The question then becomes, do you follow the traditional model of going through the way of setting up cities and infrastructure, or do you actually uh, leapfrog into the next generation where you have self-driving cars immediately um, trying to access remote areas without having to set up this whole public infrastructure? No, the self-driving cars could be public, uh, publicly funded yeah. as well, but, but this whole way of the level of um, infrastructure development that has been happening in the 20th and 21st in early uh, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, we don't have to go through that whole loop for remote areas which are being developed. Right? So we can jump straight into the 21st century uh, satellite communication with Wi-Fi, with self-driving cars, and immediately solve the problems which are unsolvable as of now because we don't have the technology in place. Well, hopefully the city planners that are working on this are very well or aware um, of the technology available because, I mean, if they're not, then obviously it's not going to be deployed. So I hope this is your job now to far going forward. You found all the city planners and you go, listen here, people, I hope you're aware of this and come and speak to me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, if I get an opportunity, but it's also the way you think about it. You should think about the cities of 21st and 22nd century yeah. rather than replicating the cities of 19th and 20th. Yeah, because you're providing, you're catering for the future. You're not, yes, you're not, you don't want to look back. You want to go forward and, yep. and do it as, as well as you can. And can I, can I jump in a, a small uh, comment here? Um, for, for whatever the, the scenario we had with the COVID, one of the things that it has exposed uh, out is we as um, humans and research and organizations can work remotely, right? Mm. And in many cases, it's possible to work remotely, which means that this whole necessity of having a very high dense uh, office building that's sitting around um, because you can't access other people is becoming less and less relevant, which means the distribution of resources, distribution of researchers has to spread out further and hence you will need new kinds of mobility solutions. I couldn't agree with you more, Tertha. I think Spotify has just announced that uh, their whole workforce, wherever you work in the world, you can yeah. work remotely. And I mean, for a company such as a multi-million dollar worth. Yeah. Uh, and I think, um, you know, COVID has certainly proven to us, if it was any shorter in the time frame, maybe you would have gone, no, it hasn't been proven. But people certainly have stepped up to it, the trustworthiness. Yeah. The only problem or you know, area of slight concern is if you're onboarding new people into an organization, because I do think it's important that you have like a cultural, yes, you know, you absolutely. want to explain to them the culture of the company. Yeah. I think just areas like that, that's just, but I'm sure it can be incorporated still. And, yeah. you know, I've got friends that work for um, energy suppliers here in Melbourne, and um, they've been given the option of, they can either um, 
work from home the whole time or they can come in and as a team they've elected three days a week they'll have like roving staff members so that yeah. you know because I think human contact is important absolutely, absolutely. you know like I I you know I I work in a startup environment and I don't really talk to a lot of people here but I come into my office and yeah. I go out and I have coffee and I say hello to everyone and I come back in and yeah, yeah. I, I, I miss that at home you know so I do think that is important but absolutely absolutely and, I, and, and it's not a mandate of whether to work from home or, yeah. or always come to the office. It has to be catered to the personal needs and accommodations. And, and if you give more freedom to human to, to work the way they want to work, they'll be much more happier and much more productive. Of course, because, you know, like, you know, the morning and night people, um, right. you know, I, I'm a morning person. I can yeah. get up early and I can, but I don't, I want to go to bed early, like at yeah. 10 o'clock, even yeah. before yeah. then I'm sleeping. But for some people, they're night people and they yeah. actually want to sleep in in the morning. So if you cater, give them their day to say, listen, as long as this work is done, it Absolutely. doesn't really yeah. matter, yeah, but yeah. your work is done. That's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. So how how is CSIRO like? How was it for you at the office? Um, were you so, given some freedom around this? Yes, yes. So uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, the the way CSIRO worked was um, very beneficial. Like there was a lot of um, opportunities. There's a lot of flexibility in work at home balance. Mm -hmm. um, and in our case, um, we as a group and as a as a as a team decided. Um, on certain activities which are essential and some activities which are not essential. So I'm apparently not essential because I can't <laughs> work remotely, uh, but, but specific robots, right? Engineers yeah. who have to work on robots. Yeah. So um, it's, I should not be coming in and taking away the headcount of the limited number of people who are yeah. necessary to do the work. Yeah. So, so you have to look at that balance as well. And we, we did a good job here internally. I never felt left out. Uh, yeah. And this is just my personal opinion I can present yeah. here. Uh, I never felt left out, but I never felt that. Um, so whenever I wanted quiet time, I could work. Well, I have a, I have a young six month old child. So sometimes my <laughs> quiet time is in the office, <laughs> but. So, uh, so, so tell me, have you got a boy or a girl? It's a, she's a girl. She's, she's a, a girl. girl. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Congratulations. Thank so you, thank you. born in just after COVID, during COVID. Yes, storm. yes, <laughs> yes. So she's a post-COVID child. And, and uh, I'm just worried that she would never know that that travel and excitement and meeting people and hugging people as she I'm, grows up in this sanitized environment. I'm sure it's going to be fine. You know, I, yeah. I look at it and I go, eventually this will become... You know, things will normalize. We'll we'll Absolutely. get our vaccine. We'll build up herd immunity. I don't think it's yeah. ever going to go away. I think this is going to be something that that we've got forever. And yeah. um, you know, we're just going to have it to navigate it. So, yeah. Yeah. oh, but congratulations. What's Thank her name? You. Thank you. Uh, her name is Iliana. Oh, so sweet, Iliana. Oh, wonderful. So listen, I I think no one begrudges you if there's a bit of noise in the background and. Um, yes. I feel nothing for your quiet time. You must look after your daughter. <laughs> so, so tell me, Tirtha, what yeah. excites you about robotics and, and where do you think we're going to go with this? Like um, robots in our homes, aged yeah. care, what do you think of this? So absolutely. Uh, I mean, the robots were built to assist humans, right? So, and if, uh, and uh, until, <clears throat> until this past century and now, they have been assisting humans remotely, like they have been sitting in factories and helping on the on the remote aspect of it. But um, uh, I think with the technological breakthroughs and the excitement, 
they are now coming to live with us in, in many sense, right? So, um, and hence the whole aspect of uh, robots in our home is going to be the, the biggest challenge. So humans are, are very good at adapting to new technology and new, new companions and, and, and new tasks. Um, the robots are not so. So um, that's one of the biggest area of growth that I see. Uh, and especially that crosses across different domains. It could be healthcare, it could be uh, education, it could be uh, remote monitoring, assistive living, whatever the case be, wherever there's, even in workforce. So you have homo robots and humans interacting and assembling uh, a work piece that's of critical. You have seen robots in art, right? So, so nice. VIP is a great company that does certain things where you, you are doing some creative work, but you're getting an assistance from the robot. So the fact that the boundaries between the human space and the robot space is getting merged um, is, is what I see is the big, next biggest challenge. And a lot of people are doing some fascinating work along those lines. Um, there are a um, lot of unsolved problems, right? So for example, uh, when two humans work together, there's a lot of communication going in through the body language, through eye contact, right? Um, I remember when I was doing some things under uh, with my father or, or whoever was monitoring me, just as a small cough <clears throat> would yeah. notify me that something is wrong, right? So <laughs> the robots have to learn like notifications and yeah. people getting irritated, right? So, yeah. so there's a lot of, lot of these open challenges that need to be resolved, but that's where the next generation of researchers and activities are going to happen. Yeah, I'm look at about that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating because as human beings, we haven't even perfected it. So now we're expecting this of robots, like as you say, slight nuances where you look yeah. at something, um, you know, we from different countries, um, yeah. you know, different cultural, you know, what I think is acceptable isn't necessarily acceptable somewhere else. And, yes, you know, like yes. all sorts of nonverbal cues that you look at. So, um, look, I think we way, way off yet, but uh, it, it is going to come at some yeah. point in time. So now you're the, Australian, the Secretary for the Australian Robotics and Automation Association. You were voted on this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, tell us what's happening in Melbourne, because I think uh, the conference is being held at the Monash University this year. Oh, yes, yes. So um, the Australian Robotics uh, and Automation Association is basically a group of researchers and, and participants who actually look at and facilitate discussions about various research, industry, and robotics topics in Australasia, right? So it's not just Australian, it's yeah. Australasian. So we have New Zealand partners as well. Yeah. And um, one of the flagship events of this particular association is the Australian Australasian Conference on Robotics and Automation, which is ACRA. Yeah. So I was uh, the general chair last year, but this year uh, in December, there's going to be uh, a conference happening at Monash University. Uh, the general chair this year is Elahe Abdi, and she is starting to build up uh, the whole program. So we have some early dates of what's going to happen. But in general, what the, the conference does is it actually forms an event or a festival or a, or, or a conference to bring the, the budding researchers, the, the undergraduate students who are doing their thesis, um, the PhD students, the postdocs, and even mid-career and um, senior people coming in and actually talking about the open challenges. It's a scientific, organized, uh, scientific conference. Having said that, um, we have had a lot of participations from the industry as well, because uh, the, the technology is right now 
so the, 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 the solutions of the robotics is not sitting in the research anymore, right? So a lot of the technological innovations are happening within companies. And so they are starting to become part of this, this uh, activity, uh, both on the association front, but also in the conference. Um, there was a lot of interesting talk last year um, with, we had uh, keynote speakers from industry to talk about open challenges. And what that has led us to believe is that um, some of the open challenges are best suited for industry to solve with, uh, with support from academia, but there are some fundamental challenges that academia needs to solve, right? With industry support. So these kind of forums actually allowed this open discussion and state of the art um, results that have come up from both, both organizations in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a unified manner, yearly basis. Um, so this year's uh, is going to be fantastic. Uh, Monash has a new robotics lab that they will be showcasing. It's going to be very exciting. So um, I will not uh, say too much about it, but I think Elahi would be coming up with um, announcements and plans over the next few months and telling what the, what the program would be and how the participation would work. But please keep a lookout for all our listeners that this will, year's will. would be absolutely. Yeah, and look, I'll I'll get hold of it as well and get her as a guest on the podcast to yes. uh, to showcase it. So, how did you navigate with COVID last year? Like, I'm assuming like you're going to have some sort of things put in place. Uh, yes. So uh, the way the organize the 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 conference would be held is completely up to how Monash does it, okay. and early indications are. Uh, they are in interested in looking at the combination of both. So not sure whether it's going to be hybrid or virtual or is it going to be face-to-face. -face. Um, in our case, in the last year, we were, we were smack in the middle of COVID. So we got the mandate to do the conference in February and we started planning as a face-to-face -face as, as a traditional conference. Uh, and then COVID hit us and then we moved into um, a hybrid mode and then we had to go pure virtual. Um, so we actually planned for three different conferences <laughs> and yeah. then we had to execute the virtual one. Um, there was an advantage to that to say that, uh, well, anyone could participate because it was uh, remotely organized, but we did miss out on the enthusiasm and laughter and off the cuff conversations um, and, and social networking that's very important in sharing and building up new ideas. Uh, that's, I mean, the ideas that you get over a course of meal or a beer or something, they are so valuable that you would not, often you would not get that just having formal organized meetings coming in uh, in suit and tie and trying to converse and try to have a breakthrough. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. It is, it's like, the, it's the water cooler discussion. Like when you're standing there wondering, now how do I fix this? And someone just comes, well, have you thought of doing this? That you go, yeah, oh, yeah. there's a reason yeah. I'm standing here today. And I agree yeah, with yeah. you. And again, yeah. you know, to the point that potentially this is, you know, for, you know, foreseeable future and maybe forever, how huh? a lot of things is done. Like you just go yeah, online yeah. and, you know, if you look at Zoom meetings where pre-COVID people go, oh, they couldn't do Zoom meetings now. This is just the accepted way. In fact, we're looking yeah, at yeah. all the other platforms that you can go onto and go, this is a yes, better yes. platform and do this, that. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, I would say that um, having an online conference is, has been very beneficial for, for me personally as well, because uh, even before COVID, there was restrictions on physicality, right? So if you wanted to go to a conference in US, well, you had to travel there and sometimes you didn't have funds, but you really wanted to be part of the discussion. But now I can 
uh, if I have time and uh, in the middle of the night, I can sit down and listen to keynote talks, uh, some of the conference that's happening in Europe and US, participate remotely. And so, so in a sense, personal connection has gone down, but I think the societal connection and, and, and people that we are talking about, uh, that has gone up in a sense, the connectivity has gone up. Uh, and I have had meetings with people that I would normally only meet once a year, but now with this scenario that, yes, it's not ideal, but they're sitting in front of the computer and I can have a quick conversation. And these are top researchers across from MIT, Berkeley. Yeah. I, ca I can get access to them, uh, which previously no, listen, was not possible. I think it's brilliant, you know, because you can also look at, at presenters and go, look, you someone I need to speak to. And I think it is just acceptable now that if people reach out to you, they, they open to it and they go, you know, you can just, I yeah. saw you on the Zoom meeting, but you know, obviously time restraints and everything, but I'd like to have another yeah. meeting with you. And I think yeah. by and large people are, they're very receptive. Absolutely. And, and uh, as, as, as just to add one more point from last year's uh, ACRA, we, we actually had um, the head of robotics uh, from NASA, JPL, oh talk to, uh, NASA Ames talk to us. We had um, the head of DARPA program who was mm -hmm. leading SAPTI. They were all present in that, that particular session. Uh, it would not be possible for us to book them out for three days to come over here and give a yeah. presentation for half an hour. But we just needed half an hour of that time and they were very gracious participants. So we had a very high profile speakers so we have speakers from US, we had speakers from, um, uh, from, from Europe, and we had speakers from this uh, NASA and, and DARPA talking to us. And that just opened up so much opportunities to talk to them. And that's exactly um, um, uh, building up on, on what you said just now. Yeah, listen, it's a collaboration worldwide because we all, all as humanity, we're all striving for the same things. It's not one country opposed to another one. Absolutely. It's like, yeah. you know, your learnings, bringing it here. I think it's absolutely wonderful. So speaking of nonverbal nudges, you know, like that, yeah. <clears throat> um, did you have a mentor? Do you have one? And, and how important yeah. do you think this is? Oh, uh, well, I don't have just one mentor. I have what? Tim Ferriss would call a tribe of mentors, right? Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember when I didn't have a mentor. And I was so fortunate, even when I was in school and college and, and wherever I was, I, it just seemed that I always had a mentor. I was quite blessed in that manner, I guess. Uh, and, but particularly, whenever there is a challenge, you can always find people who are, who are willing to step up and, and help you out. Um, uh, especially in CSRO, uh, one of the person that I, I deeply respected and um, I'll give him a call out, his name is Alberto Elfes. He actually hired me to come, come down to Australia. He had passed away last year uh, due to uh, cancer, but he was one of the, the mentors, not just from a research point of view, but also personal growth and development. And he used to care about a lot of people, right? So, and I've seen these kind of people around many different places. I, I just run out of time naming the number of people who have actually helped me out and actually mentored me in different areas. It's absolutely necessary to have the mentorship. And uh, mentors can come in any different kinds and forms, right? So um, often you think that, well, are you my mentor or are you not? But in some sense, they are giving you an advice and they are uh, mentoring you. And I try to do that from my perspective as well. I find some, um, if I have a PhD student or someone who reaches out to me, I try to see how I can help them. 
uh, am I their mentor? Probably not, but am I mentoring them for that half an hour maybe? Right. So, so you have to have this kind of variability of mentorship. Um, I did have formal mentors as well at CSRO. So Paulo de Souza was my mentor here in a formal sense. Uh, Alberto Elfes was my mentor. My PhD supervisors, David Su, they, they, they just look out for me even now, right? So the mentorship never, never really goes away. So it's absolutely essential. And I, I would really suggest people to go ahead and seek out the mentors that you look up to. Um, because even in a very small conversation, they would give you insights that would completely change the way that you're thinking. And nowadays with the global connect, uh, connectivity, you can have mentorship over emails and short chats. You, it's not um, what we would call as a gurukul mechanisms. In India, you had these gurukuls where you would go to the school and you'd have a teacher, this is a residential thing. Yeah. That has bro broken down, right? So it's easy to get mentors, but it's important to get uh, suitable mentors, but not just stick with one mentor. You have to create a whole network of mentors. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And I think the important thing is that you as a person need to recognize that you you need, um, you know, a, it's good to have a mentor. There's nothing wrong when you go, you've got a mentor and that they, yeah. um, as you can say, like a half an hour conversation of insight can completely change the direction where you're going. But I do, I do believe we in some way or another, we mentors to each other the whole time because I believe people watch each other. I love watching people the whole time too. So, and I'm always looking at them yeah. going, what are you doing? And, you know, you as a leader, when you're faced with something difficult, I can tell you now, without a doubt, your, your team, they're all watching you. You know, they may be um, discreet and subtle about it, but they're watching you to see how do you handle conflict. So, although you're not like a mentor per se for them, you are in yeah. a way because they're watching yeah. you and you you dictating to them how they will behave in the future. So um, I always say to my kids growing up now that, you know, be as nice as possible to the bus driver because you don't know what sort of a day he has and he's got your life yeah. in, your, in his hands, you know. So yes, when you absolutely. get on that yeah. bus, yeah. mind your manners, yeah. be nice, pay it yeah. forward yeah. And, and do yeah. the right thing. So yeah. Um, yeah. I love you can that, never yeah. go wrong by doing the right thing. You can never go wrong by doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I, I have to agree with him. So Tersa, now in closing, any any yeah. other advice you'd like to leave the audience? Anyone thinking of getting into robotics or anything? Any words that you have for them? Oh, just do it. <laughs> so <laughs> robotics is, uh, that's such a big opportunity. And, and uh, I was just thinking about it was, there's excitement on, on the public that like, a layman uh, person who has nothing to do with robotics, they are excited about robotics, right? Uh, the researchers are excited because there's so many problems to solve. The companies are excited because some of the technologies is being matured and you can actually spin off companies like Boston Dynamics, right? So yeah. who doesn't want to actually work in a company like that, like Boston Dynamics to bring in solutions, right? So there's this, this huge excitement in this field. And so anyone who wants to work on this should probably just start, right? That's, that's yeah. the barrier to entry has reduced so much that it's much easier to work now than it was, as I say, when I was uh, growing up, like robot was seen like just industrial robots. You only reach them or touch them uh, when you are graduating or something, right? Yeah. But now robots are everywhere. And, and you should think about, um, and this is for mostly junior audience, um, Robotics is not a fixed field, right? So you can do whatever you want. Uh, you have a new idea and you want to call it a robot, 
it's a robot, right? Yeah. So uh, it's up to you how you want to define robotics. If you, it's up to you how you want to define the field. If you want to take the field in some areas, jump in and pull the field along, right? So if you do great things, people will follow you, right? So there's no, it's it's a it's a very beneficial chaotic system where many good things are going to come up, and then it's a very exciting time to be. Oh, it's fabulous. Tessa, if any of the listens, the listeners want to get hold of you, um, can I put your email address in? Yes, absolutely. So my right. my my email would be tirtha.bandy at csro.au. Yeah. Okay, I'll pop that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to it you. It was a pleasure um, talking I, to you as well. I can see we'll just go on nattering the whole day here. And I look yes. forward to seeing you in Melbourne or when I come up to Brisbane again to catching absolutely, up with you absolutely. there. Absolutely. So. Yes, absolutely. And to our listeners, please uh, please give us feedback and uh, do subscribe to the podcast, uh, Apple uh, Let's Talk Robotics. And I look forward to speaking to you in a week's time again.